If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about literary dependence and the synoptic problem. This is looking at the process by which the Gospel authors went about writing the Gospel books. Given that the Gospel books are so similar, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it raises the questions such as, do they copy each other? Are the similarities due to the divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit? What do the evangelical scholars say about this? Is there something wrong with their approach? John will be looking to answer these questions and more. We're continuing from the previous episode today. We hope you enjoy. So it goes without saying here, but this is, this is what's being implied. Well, the gospel writers must have decided that being popular was more important than being accurate. You know, be it being entertaining was more important than being truthful. Now you might remember that Psalm 190 verse 168 says the entirety of your word is truth. But hey, if it's a choice between being popular and being honest, we'll go with popular. And that's what our gospel books are now being reduced to by these evangelical scholars. Could that have something to do with why some churches today decide to focus more on fun for the youth groups, i.e. being popular with them, than on teaching them the truth of the Bible? Well, I think so, but I don't think that's specifically from this particular problem about the, the claim of Greco-Roman BU. I think the things that we're talking about, the late dating, the attack on the authorship, the market and priority, all of these things working together have essentially undercut. And when you toss in textual criticism and Darwinism, they have destroyed the concept of inerrancy, which means the concept of biblical authority is out the window. It's very hard to say, well, we have to follow what the Bible says when we're at the other side of our mouths, we're saying the Bible's wrong on things. And I, that, that's the outcome of centuries of liberal scholarship and this is just adding to it. But yes, I think this is what's happened. Churches have lost their trust in the authority of Scripture. So they don't feel confident that we can just get up there and preach Scripture and people will follow it. They themselves have gone through seminary. They've been told, taught these things. They accept these things, most of them. And so they come out with a, a very jaded view of Scripture. So when they go to the churches, they don't feel that, well, we, we can preach this. They won't come out and say, <laughs> we, we don't believe the Bible is inerrant, is errant. But it colors everything about what they teach and how they approach things. Charles Finney is famous as, as one of these in the late 19th century who decided that what we have to do is start pushing emotional buttons on people. We have to start appealing to feelings and presumably because of, of the influence of critical scholarship, we couldn't appeal to the intellect anymore. We've got to go with feelings. And so, yes, you, you want to keep the kids in church, you're going to have to entertain them. I had one visiting lecturer when I was in seminary in a course on youth ministry in the church. 
he told us that if he has the youth for an hour, he will play games with them for 55 minutes. And then when they're all tired out and can't resist, they'll take the last five minutes to give them some Bible. And it's, it's a dead end, really, because you know what? You're never going to be more fun than the world. The world's always going to give more fun than we can. It's not our job to give fun. But when the Bible is undermined like that, what else do we have? And as I, the point I made earlier, that, that this used to be coming from outside the church, from liberal scholars, and, and it still is doing that. But the, the really scary part is that for a while now, it's been coming from inside the church, from scholars that we trust, that we think are, are giving us good defenses of the Bible and Christianity. And this is the kind of stuff we're having from them. And it's a huge problem. So if Greco-Roman BOI could actually be accurate, then I guess we shouldn't really care whether the gospel books are classified as Greco-Roman BOI or not, because they could be the accurate kind. Well, I think we should actually go with what they really are. Lycona, as we've seen, and others will say that they're Greco-Roman BOI, and will say, yes, there were ones that, that were accurate, like Esconius, but... That's not the ones. That's not the way the gospel writers wrote there, but it seems to me a moot point because, in point of fact, the gospel books are not Greco-Roman bioi. That idea has been adopted pretty much wholesale by evangelical scholars, just like we saw that they adopted the idea of Mark and priority and literary dependence. So these were not based on actual fact. On this issue, where they've accepted that the gospel books are Greco-Roman bioi. They don't seem to have bothered to do their due diligence to see whether this is really true or not. Why do you say that? There are two reasons, either one of which is actually sufficient on its own. First, they claim that the gospel books are, are Greco-Roman bioi based on their similarities. But are the similarities really such that they justify that conclusion? When we talk about similarities, we have to distinguish between trivial and significant similarities. You could draw similarities pretty much between any two people you would want to pick. However disparate they may be, you can always draw similarities. The question is, are they significant? In a philosophy class, there was a, a teacher who brought up a picture of Chuck Norris as Walker, Texas Ranger. And beside them, he put beside him he put a picture of a Nazi officer and said, Who thinks Chuck Norris, Walker, Texas Ranger, is a Nazi officer? Look at the similarities. They're both wearing boots. They're both wearing hats. They're both carrying a sidearm. They both have mustaches. So there are similarities between Walker, Texas Ranger, and a Nazi. But would any person reasonably conclude that Walker, Texas Rangers, are Nazi because of these similarities. No, not, not only that the similarities are trivial, but that each of those features is not something that's very distinctive. And that's what we mean by trivial, because they, they apply to so many different people. So many people wear hats, so many people wear boots, so many men have mustaches. So it doesn't actually serve to be a marker of belonging to a particular group. And it's the same thing with written works, for example. I remember whimsically a reviewer writing a book review on a particular book that he was unimpressed with. And his review said, this, has, this work has some of the things 
that the finest books in history have had. Front cover, back cover, pages. You could, you could draw similarities between almost any two written books. They, they have words. They have syntactical structure and so on. The real issue is how do the similarities compare to the differences? Are the similarities distinctive enough that you can class them together? And how do they compare to the differences? So are there a lot of differences between the Greco-Roman B.O.I. and the Gospels? Well, let's find out. But first, let's look at the similarities, because these are the sort of similarities that people like Burridge and Lacona would promote to say that the Gospel books should be considered as Greco-Roman B.O.I. So here are the similarities they list. Opening with a prologue by the author, or directly with the subject's name, or the subject's ancestry. That would impress you? No, too many different possible choices. Yeah, it looks like they've pretty much hedged their bets here by, by picking any possible opening. Anytime you're going to be writing about an historical personage, and the gospel books are doing that, what else are you going to open with? So I, I wouldn't think that this supposed characteristic really serves to pigeonhole a written work into a particular genre. Let's look at the second one. The central focus being the chronological sequence of the subject's life. Well, it seems pretty logical. It doesn't sound like... It sounds like that would go for any biography, not just a Greco-Roman one. I would think so. And again, if you're trying to tell the story of Jesus, who he is, yeah, you would probably pick a pretty chronological sequence. You might have topical elements to it, but so could anyone. In point of fact, if you look at the gospel books... There is some topical range of materials. If you look at the chronological sequence in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not exactly the same. Even if you pick the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put them side by side, you won't find the order of arrangement exactly the same. Matthew clearly has chosen to arrange his book topically, which is fine, as long as you're not putting in markers saying this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened saying that it happened in this particular order, in which case it has to have happened in that order for you to be accurate. But if you're not, you're free to arrange things topically. No? Of course. It doesn't sound... It sounds like anybody writing about somebody would do it. Yes. I, I could do a little brief account of the life of Edgar Rice Burroughs, famous American author. I could say that Edgar Rice Burroughs was an American author most famous for creating the character of Tarzan of the Apes. He first published Tarzan of the Apes in 1912 and wrote a total of 24 Tarzan books. He also created John Carter of Mars and wrote a series of 11 books. The Pellucidar series, uh, six volumes, uh, Carson of Venus, five volumes, and many other books. See, I could say that. But I could also say Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author, published his first book, Princess of Mars in 1912, and then he published Tarzan of the Apes, and then he published a sequel to Princess of Mars called The Gods of Mars, and then he published a sequel to Tarzan, Three Tear of Tarzan. I could go through in chronological order. The first one I did was not chronological, but could anybody say it's wrong? No. Exactly. So the gospel writers do tend to 
describe certain things in topical order rather than chronological. Now, look again. What was that similarity? The central focus being the chronological sequence of the subject's life. So wouldn't the fact that the gospel books aren't strictly chronological, wouldn't that be different from Greco-Roman Bioi instead of a similarity? Yes. I would think so. It's certainly not following that, that characteristic strictly. The imbalance between the description of the early years and the final days. This is supposed to be a characteristic of Greco-Roman Bioi. What do you think of that one? Well, probably in most in the lives of most people who are exciting enough to bother to write a biography of that person, probably the person did more things or had more things happen to him in his final days than when he was a child. Exactly, exactly. If we were going to write a biography of, say, Winston Churchill today, we probably would talk about his childhood, his growing years, though the main focus would be on his, his role as a correspondent during the Boer War and then his, his role in the Admiralty in World War One, and then especially focusing on his leadership during World War Two. But one of the things you have to remember is in the ancient world, they didn't have a publishing industry the way we do. All books were handwritten and they were written on scrolls. And scrolls had a maximum length. I think we've talked about this before. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.